Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens, end of July. Seven months of hellacious 2020 are going to be gone at the end of this week. Aren't we happy? But one thing we seriously are happy about is another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, writers, directors, composers, producers, production designers, video editors, sound editors, sound mixers, screenwriters, you name it. We talk to them. Uh, and we have two incredible, incredible guests, filmmaker guests for today. And I Oh, both of them, a huge, huge debt of gratitude. Uh, my, our Australian publicist, um, Clint Morris, who is a godsend. Anybody looking for a fantastic company, October Coast, they have a L.A. office, but also based in Australia. Um, our one, our guest who was scheduled to uh, be on the show live today, James Grixoni, uh, was taken ill. And Clint immediately let me know and within less than 12 minutes had Ryan Brookhart and Kyle Couch stepping in today. So I am very, very thrilled. And I've spoken with both of these filmmakers before. Um, I love their films. I love their outlook. I love their passion. And I'm so excited to have them on the show today. Um, Ryan's holding right now, as a matter of fact, Ryan is exceptionally prompt, people. Um, but before we get started with Ryan, I would be remiss not to, to say happy birthday, Bugs Bunny. Bugs turns 80 today. And you want to help the USPS? The Bugs Bunny stamps are available to buy today at all your post offices or online. Um, I just... If my grandfather were alive, he he was uh, a philatelist. Uh, 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 he collected stamps for his entire life, and at one point had one of the finest collections in the United States of U.S. and German stamps. Um, I know he would be very excited over Bugs Bunny. Um, I'm very excited about a Bugs Bunny stamp, but also we would be remiss not to mention the sadness that happened over the weekend. We lost Regis Philbin, a television icon. John Saxon, uh, a familiar face for decades in film and television. And, of course, um, Olivia de Havilland. The end of an era uh, passed on Sunday with uh, Olivia's passing, age 104. Um, a grand, grand lady. I was very fortunate. I got to meet her and talk with her at the 75th Academy Awards. Uh, we talked about one of my favorite de Havilland films, Snake Pit, uh, during our 10 minutes together. Um, yeah, 104, you kind of expect it, but you don't expect it, especially as vital and, and alive as she has been in her golden years. Uh, so if you're watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream, uh, you'll see a smaller tablescape today, but you will see homage to Gone with the Wind. Also, because I couldn't find it last week, I found it buried in the house. Jake Tapper, The Outpost. See the movie, read the book. And of course, Jacqueline Wilson, Four Children and It. Perfect for nighttime bedtime story reading to kids, and the movie is a family film. But, Without further ado, let's bring the wonderful Ryan Brookhart live. Hi, Ryan. Hello, Debbie. How are you? I am so happy to be talking to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, oh, well, thank you for having me. For jumping in here. Um, I don't know if Clint told you, but as soon as he told me that James was ill and couldn't do the show today, and he says, I'll get you someone else. And I and the first names I gave him were yours and Kyle Couch. Uh, and, oh. <laughs> and he was, <laughs> and within seven minutes, he's he's back to me and he said, he's like, Kyle's on board. And then less than five minutes later, Ryan's on board. And <laughs> like, oh my God. Oh, that's great. So I can't thank you enough. Um, 
Well, of course. I had mentioned to Clint. You. I had mentioned to Clint about having you do a live call in at some point. Anyway, about two ways to go west. But now we can talk about it again today, uh, and the entire sure. listening audience can hear about it. Um, as you know, I'm a big fan of this film. I love this film. I love what you have done with the film in constructing the film. Uh, it is. It's written by James <coughs> Liddell. Uh, who also stars in it along with Paul Gennaro and Drew Kenny. So tell everybody what the premise is, because we don't want to give away a whole lot. So you give away how much of the plot you want to give away. Well, that's a that's a great question. I, you know, I, I've generally been telling people that it's um, it's three childhood friends that uh, come together for a classic male rite of passage uh, bachelor party. And it seems like it's a relatively uh, cut and dry sort of uh, scenario. You know, three dudes are going to hang out and they're going to, you know, uh, relive old, you know, childhood, uh, you know, memories, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, everything sort of takes a turn because one of them is, has, sort of uh, they've retained some regrets and some anger regarding something that happened in their collective childhood. And you see how I'm sort of dancing around. Yes, <laughs> yes, I love this. Of course, you, I and, think it, uh, you, you should tell everybody, though, it's set in Vegas. Yes, it's set in Vegas. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think the thing about Vegas for me is I decided it had to be uh, – well, I didn't decide. I mean, this was in the script, but James I had talked decided, to James yeah. about this. I said – you know, I'm not a big fan of Vegas per se. So I, let's make it Vegas, but let's sort of play off of things we don't normally see with Vegas. And that isn't to say like we haven't had movies like Leaving Las Vegas, Leaving Las Vegas, etc. But you know, I wanted to kind of zoom in on things like you know, a guy with a cup in his hands, or you know, if we're on uh, you know the the lights of Vegas, maybe see them in a puddle of dirt or something. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to find a place where uh, you're sort of seeing it through the eyes of someone who's going through something as opposed to, okay, it's a very bad situation, but look at these beautiful Vegas lights and showgirls and whatever. It's like, well, that's not the tone of the character of what the character's going through, specifically Gavin, who's played by James Liddell. So I didn't want to make something that was sort of anachronistic to his viewpoint. I wanted something to play right into it. And, you know, some people like that. Some people say, well, gosh, the Vegas is prettier than that. Well, it is, except when you're going through a terrible addiction, and then it looks different. Yes. So, anytime you know, I've I've been to Vegas just when I'm miserable, and it does not look <laughs> as pretty and wonderful as it normally does. Or I'm there no. and I'm losing. I mean, all, if you're not uh, feeling well, a piece of carrot cake won't look good. That's just it. As much as you want it to, it is not going to. You know, something that right. I that I love that really plays into the story is the way it's quote-unquote chapterized, broken into emotions of I love you, I hate you, I need you, I lost you. Uh, now, did James yeah. have that broken down in the script, or is this something that the two of you decided to do? Because it works so well cinematically for your visual tonal bandwidth to have those emotional tenets pretty much set out. Uh, and it allows for some camera changes, some lighting changes, um, and which changes the whole tenor of that segment. So I'm curious, was that originally written, or did the two of you work on that? I don't recall if it was in the original original version of the script. I, I do know that it was baked into the script at some point, and it was something that he and I spoke about at length, about, well, then how do we apply that to this story? Uh, do we add, you know, uh, literally chapter breaks kind of, or, um, and how do we do that? And I think that that was ultimately decided on right before we got into the rough edit of the film when we sat down and we just kept, you know, cutting and cutting and just trying to assemble a cut of the film, not the final cut, but something that puts the whole thing together. Like, you know, all movies do, as you know, mm-hmm. um, that was one element of it. The other element that sort of came about, I'm going to take my headphones off and talk to you to the phone because I've got a bad distortion here. Hold on one second. Okay. 
sounds so much better. Now I can actually hear my own voice. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've got these noise-canceling headphones on. The other thing that happened um, was that once the script was, you know, obviously we made the film, and we, we used the script as a, as in a guidepost throughout the editing process, that's the time when I said, you know, I'd really like to shoot some additional scenes with your character and, and Addie, who's played by uh, V. Mm-hmm. And so those scenes were then shot, I think maybe even like a few months after the initial principal photography. After that is when I said, let's have another thing with Levy, which just her, you know, sort of dancing in black and white, very uh, sort of film noir and her not looking, basically looking the opposite of the way she looks in the sort of warm flashbacks where she's in bed with Gavin and she's, you know, recalling a story from her childhood. So that wasn't in the initial script, uh, neither one of those scenes. But I thought by putting those in and then, you know, splicing them in, interspersing them in throughout the movie mm-hmm. would, would give us a sense of his sense of loss and his sense of addiction to her his relationship with her. And it also, I think, reinforced um, something that was already kind of in the script, which was sort of these chapter breaks. So I think adding that stuff gave it an additional, you know, sense of, uh, you know, sort of forward momentum. We were sort of figuring out almost in a way a mystery, like, well, what what was this relationship and how does this play into the rest of his psychology? Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully that worked. Well, and, you know, you and I had talked about this, but playing right into that, in order to make that work and to create some ambiguity there, uh, you know, you know, is it is it live or is it Memorex? Is this a flashback? Is this a dream? Is this a hallucination? Um, right. This this falls on your work with your cinematographer with Elnar. I'm not even going to say his last name because I know I'll screw it up. Um, he is as will I. See, okay, Elnar, <laughs> we love your work. We're not going to mess with your name though. Um, He's a genius, and it shows here. Um, number one. It, the whole because this is so contained essentially within one hotel room and a bathroom for such a large portion of the film, it falls right. to the cinematographer to create some interesting visual angles. So, because if you just have people and you see guys talking and battling with each other, that's going to get boring pretty fast. Um, so you oh, it can be it's an enormously heavy lift for for any DP. Yeah, and you know. I, I, I kept asking him for shots that I think may have been somewhat impossible, but he managed to make them work. And that was, you know, one of the things that I kept saying, look, we have, you know, a limited amount of space here that we're working with, but uh, I don't want the film to feel like intentionally claustrophobic. I, you know, there, there's enough expanse that we can broaden it out occasionally, and we do, but when it gets intimate, I want those intimate moments to not feel like, oh, well, we're compromised because mm-hmm. of the film, but we're actually doing it deliberately, which is the case. Right. Because it wasn't a, a tiny space. And one of the first things I did, you know, because we all, you know, anytime it's a, a low-budget film, everyone's doing triple or quadruple duty. And I was also sort of art directing the film. So one of the first things I did was I went in and I stripped out so much stuff that was in that actual hotel. Um, and I said, look, let's, let's really bring it down so the animation, the color the content of that room is really the guys. Mm-hmm. And so we're never not focused on that. And it also gives us a lot of latitude visually, you know, and with them. So that was important. Absolutely. And he did it. Elmar did it. He does a beautiful job. And he there you have some sequences in there. He really plays with the focal length, uh, with the foreground yeah. and the background. There are scenes where Gavin, he's talking to himself essentially it's almost as if he's zoned out and he doesn't realize that shane and marty are actually in the room and you just see them in the back breakdown scene after we're talking about a break the breakdown scene they you know they kind of disappear into the back everything blurs out your focal length the foreground is all that matters and elnar does such a beautiful job of vacillating with this back and forth in the film, even when Gavin does leave the hotel room and is out yeah. on the street, 
which is where we get some gorgeous, gorgeous reflective pops of color in puddles on the ground, blurred in the background. Um, really yeah. beautiful, beautiful work. But the two of you stripping everything away, we really hone in. It allows us to hone in on the emotion that those colors elicit. And it forces mm -hmm. us to focus on the boys and their acting. And as you know, I just am beyond enamored with Paul Gennaro's performance as Marty. <laughs> he is his grounding in this film. And it's his effortless ease and non-histrionic behavior that is, you know, I, I said this to you when we spoke the other week. It's people think women can be histrionic and catty. <laughs> Where do you see guys get together? Okay. Um, yeah, exactly. And Paul is a standout there for the non-histrionics, for the, the common sense, the rationale. And, uh, you know, he always tries to make it about somebody else. You see these... It's the toughest thing about doing drama is that, you know, there is a sense that, and, and you know, get go to a first-year, you know acting class in college or whatever, and you'll see people think that drama is yelling or crying or screaming. And the most powerful drama, of course, is that that, that quiet desperation of the soul, right? Mm -hmm. When you can find a way to convey, um, um, you know, even contradictory emotions where you can play it happy, but you're really sad. And or, you know, the idea that, well, I want to scream, but I can't even, you know, I can't even muster up the way to get that out because I'm so internally defeated. Stuff like that is so difficult to play. Yeah. And, of course, it's difficult to capture, too. You've got to know, you've got to trust in the artist that's in front of the camera, you know, whoever that might be. And, obviously, you behind the camera, you've got to be prepared for that, that opportunity and preparation. And yeah. that's the thing with, you know, that scene you're talking about, which I think we spoke about a little bit last time, which mm -hmm. was, you know, that the, the scene in the script, that really hit me that really hard because I said, God, this is a beautifully written soliloquy, but... If you say this to the guys, it's going to come off very theatrical and not necessarily, uh, you know, it won't necessarily play the way I think it could play. Whereas if we if we get really tight on you, if we become really intimately in your face and even suggest that, you know, we're in your head by having those flashes of you know memory with his girlfriend, uh, then you're talking essentially to yourself. And by you talking to yourself, it becomes a confession to you. And that, to me, is what makes that work so well. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, and it allows James to really, you know, again, really internalize. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's phenomenal. Um, we have to talk about the bathroom for <laughs> for multiple reasons. And I know all the listeners, everybody's sitting at home, and they're going, "The bathroom? Yes, the bathroom." <laughs> Um, we always have to talk about bathrooms, yes. Well, especially hotel bathrooms. As every, pre <laughs> as every press person in Los Angeles knows, the SLS Hotel, the only bathrooms with locks on them are the ones downstairs in the restaurant bar. The, the bathrooms in all the hotel rooms, they're sliding doors and they don't lock. So whenever we would be at a press junket, you always have to make sure everybody knows that you are in that bathroom and don't go sliding oh, yeah. the door. Um, so oh, yeah. these are important things, you know, America needs to know. <laughs> yes, they do. I think, yeah, this is, this is an important expose that we're making right here. Yes, it is. No, but you're right. The bat, so the bathroom. Yeah, because <laughs> this is some of the most, number one, the scenes are very powerful, but number two, what helps make them so powerful is Elnar's lensing and the camera placement and as I told you before, it's like he was like hanging from the ceiling to capture yeah. these angles. Because as anybody who sees Two Ways to Go West will note immediately, this, the bathroom that is on screen is a very small, small bathroom. Right. But the visual is outstanding. Talk about well, that. Was that was a tough thing. That was, I, I think we, um, yeah, we... We were talking about that a little bit last yeah. time, which was, uh, you know, I said I really wanted to get this sort of God's eye view at, at, a, at a certain point, because there's a lot of shots where we're, you know, we're, we're aiming up 
towards James, you know, yeah. where he's, you know, he's sort of, you know, he's either looking in the mirror, that kind of duality thing that we're kind of playing at, and then sort of watching him almost were spying on him because, mm-hmm. you know, every time he goes into the bathroom, he sort of comes out a different person. Yep. He goes into the bathroom to make a choice. He comes back out. He comes out into the bathroom, he, you know, uh, and then he's confronted by something. And again, I'm trying not to be too specific. And of course, and there, there is the mirror. Time we see him in the bathroom. Yes. Or I should say the last time we, the last time we see him in the bathroom uh, before the very end of the film, mm-hmm. now we're looking down on him, which is the, again, that was a very specific visual signifier that I wanted to play with. And I remember bringing that up to Elnor and he was like, uh, well, I don't know how to do that because we're, how, you know, we don't really have this, the latitude to get that shot. And he came up with this idea of sort of, you know, obviously we had tripods that wouldn't go that high. So he jerry-rigged something. And then we were able to, like, basically put the video feed out to, like, you know, like little hut, you know, outside in the living room. to Because at, at that point, we're locked in. We can't do anything. We can't, you know, zoom in or whatever. And so it was this very sort of almost dispassionate shot of him with his girlfriend. And we repeat that shot again, obviously, when he then comes out of his his uh, his haze and he's, you know, alone, and then we can punch in. And by that point, the camera's in the bathroom. But, yeah, that, that was a... It was a tough series of shots, but, uh, you know, he figured it out. We, we all figured it out. Well, and, of course, there's this a gorgeous round mirror in the bathroom that just plays. There are some camera angles there that really just capitalize on the metaphor of duality uh, yeah. that I am so in love with. Um, it, it just just absolutely stunning. There's no lighting reflection coming off the glass, off the mirror. There's nothing obstructing. And we don't see James' full face. We're getting profiles right. from each way. The uh, profile, almost a three-quarter of him standing live, and then just a profile of the other half of his face in the mirror. And that speaks volumes as to the character of Gavin. Um, you couldn't yeah, have, that, yeah, that, that is, that's one of those serendipitous, fabulous cinematic elements that you stumble on and boy, you're so glad you've got it. Well, you know, and James, you know, had written it in the script. I don't know, you know, sometimes when you write stuff and I write a lot of stuff myself, um, and sometimes you're not really aware, or I think oftentimes if you're writing really authentically, you're not aware of all the metaphors you're dropping into your own stories. Yeah. And something that I feel that, you know, is so clear in, in the story is that, you know, Gavin, the character James plays, is he knows he's not a whole person. Yeah. He knows that he's sort of split himself up into different places in his life, both, you know, literally and metaphorically. And so, you know, the mirror could have played uh, like, oh, gosh, here's another mirror motif. But by not really overselling it, yep. it allows it to kind of just hover there. And then you can kind of, as a viewer, say, oh, you know, he's telling these people one thing, but he's doing this other thing. And he's telling his girlfriend one thing, but he's telling himself something else. And by always using the bathroom as like a way to, to go in and reset and then come back out and, you know, checking himself, but not, again, not with like a, oh, look at my hair or let me no. you know, smile and check my teeth. It's more of like this sort of dispassionate, again, you know, looking at this, this, this reflection, but not necessarily even understanding what he's looking at. Mm-hmm. The same thing happens with the poster where he, he can't even look at the poster. He's like, why are you looking at that? And, it, you know, he's full frame on that poster. Yes. But he doesn't, he, he finds it unappealing, maybe even a little bit alien, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a very interesting element, two, two ways to go west that I'm a big fan of is your sound design. Um, mm. People are so afraid. A lot of filmmakers are very afraid of the absence of sound. You are not afraid of that. And the absence of sound plays so well into the cacophony of confusion in J- that James has within himself. Um, Talk to me about your sound design with this film. Well, Jane and I talked a lot about it. When we, when we first started, once the film was completely done, um, he was over here with his uh, computer, and we were doing, like I said, a, a, a rough assembly. 
where we just were laying all the train tracks out. We're just putting the whole thing down. And there were a lot of questions about, well, how do we, how do we make this, you know, sound? Because, you know, we were obviously not going to make a film that had low budget sounding movie sound, right? Because that's such a clear, you know, you know, no, no, that happens so much in, in, in low budget cinema. And so we knew we had good sound. The question was, where, where did we use it and where did we use silence? Because this is a story about people communicating, but not necessarily saying what they're thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And so we had conversations about, well, you know, where do we put in sound? Where do we put in music? And at some point early on, and this, is, this goes beyond this movie, this just talks about our general creative philosophy together, is that we're pretty much the same person. We have this thing that we call the hive mind. Literally, and sort of like we'll start talking about, well, you know, this place would be great to not have this or not have that, and you know, in the editing process, we're cutting, 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 cutting. You know, this film could have gone on for two hours. Frankly, people say, oh, oh yeah, it's, it's really brisk. Well, there was a lot of trimming of conversations. Like at the very beginning, there's a long conversation between Marty and and uh, and um, Shane, mm -hmm. and played by the terrific Drew Kinney. Mm -hmm. And and I and it, it came to the point where I said, and, and, and James agreed, it was like, the story's not important. What we should be doing is dropping in on the story to understand these guys, you know, how they react to each other, the fact that, you know, they have this shorthand, the fact that they like each other, but they're bickering, and you go, oh, I believe they're friends. The story becomes unimportant. The story that's being, I should not say the story in the film, but the story that they're telling each other at the beginning it's not really important how the story ends. Right. And so that was another example of, of, okay, well, how do you play with sound? Do you overlap a little bit? And there is very subtle, you know, uh, crosstalk that happens, and then that bleeds over into, you know, cutting back to Gavin on the outskirts of Vegas. Then, of course, you're talking about, like, you know, like when Gavin has his breakdown, mm -hmm. and everything sort of builds into this crescendo, and then silence yeah. between the two of them. We just hear that sort of repeating uh, sort of like, uh, you know, minor key hitting the piano. And that was something that when James put that in as sort of a, he's like, what do you think of this? And I, I was like, that's, that's the way it should be because we don't need to know the specific grievances that they're fighting over. You know, we kind of know, we, we've already heard it a few times and now there's maybe some additional, you know, texture to the the thing that James is saying, but he's drunk and he's on drugs and he's screaming, and you know uh, Gavin is trying to defend, or I'm sorry, uh, Shane is trying to defend himself, and Marty's in the middle of it. And what we should be seeing is just that 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 mm -hmm. perfect example of here's a guy in the middle, which is Marty, you know, and then these two opposing forces, and the three of them are st it's like this, they're still friends in some way. There's there's a, so much pain there. And the old saying goes, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't raise my voice, or you know, if I if I if I didn't care, I wouldn't get angry. And uh, and that's all that mattered. It didn't matter what the words were. And so that's yet another example of, you know, the sometimes the absence of sound is the is, plays the strongest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm so happy to see that in this film because it really just elevates. The dynamic amongst the three uh, amongst the three guys, and their individuality it really lets that come through. So we really understand um, who Shane is as a lawyer. Um, oh yeah, uh, and he is really when people think of lawyer, this is the the kind of lawyer they think of. Um, yeah, Drew nails that so he so well. really he, you know, does. He's got this. He understood this whole notion of like the kind of reptilian, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, he doesn't really have his own internal warmth. But yeah. if there's a problem, he can get really warm up to that. And, you know, he 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 really embodies that so well in the story. And it's, it's sort of complete opposite of who he is as a person. He's such a warm, <laughs> nice guy. And the fact that he's able to play it so dark and so, you know, conniving is a uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a bit of a testament to how well he is as a performer, and I, you know, I admire him immensely because of that. Yeah, you love. I'm hoping to get him in this next film I'm working on too. So, you know, I got to say something on 
just on the topic of sound, I was just yesterday was uh, rewatching The Birds, uh-huh. and uh, you know that, that's one of those great famous Hitchcock films where he didn't want there to be any music, but he mm. still used Bernard Herrmann, the great you know of course. Uh, composer, uh, to basically confect the sounds of the birds and how the, the sound design would work. And I always found it to be, as a child, I was freaked out by that movie because it felt so real because of that. There was no, there was nothing to, to hang your hat on going, okay, so here's a thematic piece of music where so the no. Hedron comes in or whatever. And it was just, it, it felt stark. And because of that starkness, it felt even more real. Well, and of course, the fact that you see so many ravens and crows and starlings because they're black. So you've got yeah. the sound and to a large degree, so much of that black and white, um, the emotion, it's either, you know, it's one or the other, either you're petrified with fear or you don't care. Um, very, very black and white, uh, thematics happening in that film, uh, good and evil, oh, yeah. even in the way that he shot the film and had camera people throwing real meat at Tippi Hedren so birds would actually fly at her. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not the, it's not like you know, it's his, his finest hour in terms of him dealing with people because he really terrorized her in real life. <laughs> but ah, uh, um, be, before I let you go, Ryan, I've got to ask you. You've been posting a lot about Trace. Um, yes. Where can now everybody can find your new uh, two ways to go west? That's now digitally right. available. Everybody can find it. Everybody can see it. They should. It's a brisk seventy-eight minutes, people. Um, yes. So, yeah, a little over an hour of your time. Perfect. Um, <laughs> what about what now? Trace. Where can people see that? Pretty much all the same places. Okay. You can see it on uh, Tubi, on Amazon, whatever. And, you know, I, I've been posting um, about the, the this, I, gosh, it's so hard to say it. It's not a sequel. Um, it's not even a prequel, necessarily. It's a it's a film that sort of place, takes place adjacent to all the mythology okay. that was created in the story, in the first one. But it's much, a, much more of a pure version of what I originally had in mind. I'm mm-hmm. very proud of the first movie. Um, but this is a, a different movie, and it has a. Um, but I, it's great to you know I, I'm promoting Trace because I'm I'm proud of it, but also to let people know that there is another film coming. Well, I'm going to actually watch Trace since I haven't seen it before, so I'm going oh, to watch do. it, and then when I do, I want to have you back on the show, and we can talk about Trace as well. Well, I'll tell you what, we talk about Trace. We can talk about my my. Uh, my time knowing uh, William Peter Blatty, the guy who wrote The Exorcist, okay. he gave me so much material, <laughs> and it, I would be thrilled to do that because there's a lot of great stories I can tell you, and it'll almost be like an old episode of Art Bell. You're, you're uh, all you're right. Who that is? But all we can. Right. It'll it'll sound like uh, you know, like one of those paranormal radio talk shows because I've got lots of information. Well, you got a deal. You got a deal, Ryan. Okay, great. I Make will... sure you turn off the lights. Okay. Turn on the sound really loud. Okay. And I think you'll have fun. Ooh, good. And then I will call you. I will call you after I see it, and we'll set something up and have you back on the show. I would be delighted. That would be. I honestly, that would make me. That would make my dad love to talk about that. Oh, Ryan, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show today, talking about two ways to go west. Everybody, see it. Go see Trace. I'm going to see Trace, and then we're going to talk again. Excellent. I am so thrilled. Debbie, have a wonderful day. You too, Ryan. You too. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was director Ryan Brookhart. And now another, another filmmaker I am so thrilled to talk to again. Hello, Kyle Couch. Welcome, welcome. Hi, hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh my God, thank you so much. Thank you so much um, for jumping in at the last minute, 11th hour here to to come on the show. Thank you. And this time we have no construction happening here in the studio. So oh, that's good. <laughs> but I'm I'm so thrilled to talk to you again about the tent because this is, 
It's a very special movie, um, but it is your use of metaphor on every level here in storytelling and the originality, uh, the cleverness of telling this story and working your way towards a third act, truth-telling, so to speak. Um, it's yeah. apoc- it, this is apocalyptic on multiple levels, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, where, where, now I know the answer to this question, but for our listeners, where did the idea for the tent originate? Um, this is a very unique story. We've, we've seen similar on television and on film addressing some of the things in the film, but this is very unique in the way you tell this story. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, you know, with the tent, um, the initial idea really was kind of born from uh, kind of a nightmare that I had. Um, if I'm being 100% honest, you know, I had a very vivid nightmare, um, about, you know, kind of the end of the world and, uh, and I don't know, maybe I ate, uh, too many sweets the night before I went to bed or I watched, uh, you know, a scary movie I shouldn't have watched or something, but something inspired this really vivid, uh, kind of nightmare, if you will. And I woke up the next morning and I said to my wife, Hey, you know, uh, I, I explained it to her in detail, and she said, Mike, you know, that, that sounds really scary. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, no, I'm fine, but it's got my creative juices flowing. And then, you know, it really just kind of started to piece itself together. And really, I have to give props to Tim Kaiser. He plays oh. the lead David in the film. He really, I had an idea for where the film goes towards, um, towards the end. Um, and I don't want to give too much away. No. But basically, he said hey, let's take that and turn it up to 10. And I said, I really, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't like that. And I said, but you know what? Um, in the in the spirit of collaboration and creativity, uh, I'll give it a whirl. And I sat down, turned on some music and started writing. And it really just started writing itself. And I couldn't stop. And within an hour, I sent him a very rough draft of what that oh ending would look like now. And, uh, and what it kind of, uh, somewhat resembles in the film. And he was like, how I think this is it. Let's do it. And that's really, you know, the, the very short version of, you know, how this kind of came to be. Well, you take us on a real ride with this film. Uh, because as I've said to you before, it's, there's a lot of metaphor. There's a lot of ambiguity and you're more than halfway in the film before we get an inkling that things are not what they seem. And yeah. I just love how well-paced that is and how you keep us so intrigued. And you do that not only because of Tim's incredible performance, also Lulu Dahl's performance as Mary. This is primarily just a two-hander for 90% of the film uh, with Tim yeah. and with Lulu. But this is where your work with your cinematographer with Robert Skates comes in. Wow. You know, I am blown away by what you did with cinematography and sound in this film. As you take us, you mute your tonal, your visual tonal bandwidth, the palette, you take us into black and white because David is essentially living in a tent, uh, presumably in a post, uh, in a post apocalyptic time, and he's trying to survive. So things are very washed out. But then there are, there are creatures. There are creatures outside the tent. And you give us the perspective of the creatures looking at him, which is black and white. And you play, you and Robert play with shades of gray so beautifully. And then you bring your sound design in as well. This is just so cinematic. And... Well, so you. eloquent in its in its craftsmanship. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's I you know the crew really worked together in a way that uh, that I'm so proud of. Um, from Robert, as you had mentioned, you know, uh, shaping the lights and really figuring out how to solve problems that appear on set, especially when you're shooting outside. Primarily, I would say that. 
almost 90% of the film is outdoors. So, mm-hmm. you know, he is basically at the um, mercy of the elements. And, you know, we did have a, a little bit of um, grace provided to us, uh, you know, by shooting inside the tent. Um, but even then, you know, Robert was very keen on shooting inside the tent on a on a stage as opposed to out in the wilderness so that way we could have a little bit better control. And I would have never even thought of that had it not been for him. So mm-hmm. really, and, and Mike coming on, Mike was our sound guy, Michael Primo. And, uh, you know, he recorded all these noises and he would just in between takes be off getting different sound effects out in the woods. And he'd be like, don't worry, I'm going to use it for later. And then just to see what he did in post-production on the sound. So, again, you know, I I can't there's so many other people um, that I don't have time to mention. But, I mean, our prop designers to our sound guys to Robert um, and then, of course, Lulu and Tim bringing it to life in their performances. Everybody works so well together in a way that was just, it was, I'm so proud of that team and, and what they were able to really pull off. You know, because so much of this takes place within the confines of David's tent because it's the only place he feels secure. Um, how did you, how big was the actual tent that you constructed and of course as you watch there are all these tools and things on the you know clipped up on the interior of the of the tent canvas were those actual mm-hmm. tools clipped up on there yeah you know well it's funny the the tent we um we purchased off of ebay it was we, we went through a lot of iterations of trying to figure <laughs> out what kind of tent we wanted to use what what look we were going for we actually settled on a kind of military grade type tent. And um, I was telling this story to someone else the other day when we ordered this thing, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And when it came in the mail, it was like just this massive box that was all duct taped together. So when we took it out of the box, it just exploded onto the ground. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And when we finally erected this thing up in a parking lot, it took us about four hours to figure out how to do this. Um, it was massive, and we realized in that moment, like, okay, we got to make it half the size because this is just far too far too large for what we were going for. Um, but I remember we we my crew, I was like, hey man, this this tent is gonna be a beast to really set up. And uh, they after they did it, they're like, man, you weren't kidding that this was this was intense to to take down and set up and and all that stuff. But, uh, and then, you know, our prop designers just, uh, once they got the fuel for the tent, what kind of tent it was, um, they were able to just start playing around with the inside. They, you know, the, the vision was to really make the inside of the tent look like it had been lived in for quite some time that it had could sustain the apocalypse, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our prop designers really just went to town on the inside of that tent and, and told little stories with every single little prop. It was mm-hmm. it was really cool. Yeah, every 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 tool that you see in there, everything that David has stacked up on the ground, um, tucked away, it it's all pieces of, of of the world, pieces of life of one's life. Um, something that you stumble across on the ground, it reminds you of something. Like a kid who just, you know, years ago, you think of Beaver Cleaver or Opie Taylor just pulling out, emptying their pockets and out come little jacks and little stones and a penny run over by a railroad, you know, by a train on the railroad tracks. Um, It has that kind of homey feel to it almost. That might be a strange word to describe that the tent and the structure itself but that that's the feel that you get as you watch this well that's what we were going for and with tim you know sitting inside of that absolutely absolutely homey it's like a grandfather sitting in there amongst you know his collection of life um yeah it's almost what it's akin to you know I've got to, you have to talk about your incredible colorist. It's not often I get to talk about a colorist. But Paul, your your colorist on this film, he just did amazing things with the visual tonal bandwidth, with the coloring here. Talk to me about that collaboration because for the look that you have, 
this took some thought, a lot of thought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Paul was just great. I mean, he he uh, is such a hard worker, and you know, he he Paul is is very talented. He works on um, a lot of Netflix shows and you know, uh, a lot of different, uh, films. And there was actually, uh, I'm not sure how much, you know, he can talk about certain things, but there was a major, uh, Hollywood blockbuster that he worked on. So, um, you know, just getting him on board was a dream come (laughs) true. But then, you know, as we, as we progressed through and I kind of showed him what I was going for, he picked up on it right away. And, um, you know, I was I was pretty determined on on what it would look like, but uh, I didn't know how to achieve it. And Paul was able to read me so well um, and really just hone in on even moments or uh, uh, you know different things that maybe didn't work out 100% with the lighting in certain parts. And he was able to transform that lighting even. Um, so his work went far beyond just the color. He also was able to you know, make shadows and shapes and stuff like that. So he was just a rock star in all regards. And, and he really just uh, brought the movie to life. And I remember seeing it after the color grade and I'm like, Oh my gosh, is this our movie? Like, this is incredible. And like being able to take basically the stage that Robert Skates set up mm-hmm. for him to play with and then transforming it into this new vision. It was just awesome to see the work that he put into it. You know, how important is it to you as a filmmaker, um, the color correction aspect of filmmaking? It's very important. I think, you know, your, your symbolism is starts with the color. Mm. You know, it's the things that you're trying to say about the characters, the things that you're trying to say about the setting, the things that you're trying to say about the story that's progressing, um, is all, a first initially, you know, plugged into our brains through the color that you use. And so uh, it's huge for me. I mean, I research a lot about colors. I research, you know, what certain kind of colors mean psychologically to most people. Um, and then even in this, there was little shades of color that we put in. Uh, and again, you know, without giving too much away, uh, choosing Lulu's pink hoodie Mm -hmm. um there was a lot of discussion about that and why we were choosing to do that and uh that that choice of hoodie was made uh specifically for a reason that had thought behind it and so um it was it was huge it was huge color uh i can't imagine uh could be any bigger um for my head when i'm thinking about what the vision is going to look like Mm mm-hmm well, and I have to. I'm bringing. The, I have to bring this up because it will make my aunt in Georgia very, very happy to have us talk about this. But all of the religious symbolism and metaphor in here. I mean, starting with you know just your characters' names of David and Mary, and then we meet one other person. Uh, mo- I'd say the third the third name on on the credits would be um, would be the character of Gabriel. Talk to me about yeah. bringing in because there is so much hidden meaning here, metaphoric meaning, religious uh, iconography and and metaphor happening here. And I think yeah. that just when you see how this film plays out, it really just sends it all home. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. You know, I think the spiritual element of this movie, while it was certainly intended, um, you know, we didn't set out to make a Christian movie. We didn't set out to make any type of religious film um, by any means. But I myself, you know, uh, am religious, you know, and so there is a spiritual element to the way I live my life. And so when I'm writing a story that's going to bleed through um, anytime I write something. And, you know, one of my biggest common complaints is hitting people over the head with your message and hitting people over the head and kind of taking them to seminar, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm more interested in telling a story that involves real characters that people can connect with. And so for me, 
uh, in the tent, the biggest thing was to to look at the religious aspects through David's character mm-hmm. and really understand it on the level that he understood it. And then from that, build build out of that. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of subtle and not so subtle references to religion um, done purposefully because I really think that's who the character of David is. And, of course, as I had mentioned, you know, me being a very spiritual person myself, it's just going to bleed out of me anytime I write something that is somewhat personal like the tennis. Well, and what's so beautiful about about how you've written it and and how the spirituality and religion is interwoven, it's integral within what you've written, is that if you are not a spiritual person or a religious person, you're not going to see the the metaphor that's happening here. You're just going to see this as a really good drama uh, yeah. with, with a yeah. great interpersonal relationship uh, between David and Mary building in the film. You're not going to see it. Um, and that, I think, is, is a testament to you as a filmmaker, as a, as a writer, as a, as a director, that you aren't beating anybody over the head. And it's the kind of thing, if you happen to know it, okay. You're going to pick up on this. If you don't, you still you're seeing a good movie. So yeah, it, it, it's a win-win either way. Um, you know, something very brave that you have done <laughs> with this film. A lot, a lot, a lot of dialogue, Kyle. A yeah. lot of dialogue. Very dialogue-heavy film, but it's not tedious, uh, and it's also not convoluted dialogue it is conversational it people can relate to it to what's being said did you have any kind of trepidation in to with the amount of dialogue that you have in this film yeah i think there's definitely always going to be that trepidation in in just you know presenting the actors with you know this level of script um, meaning this level, meaning this amount of dialogue. Um, you know, I think that there's always kind of like, oh man, are they going to, are they going to be able to like kind of get this down and really hammer it out? And also, you know, with that much dialogue, you don't give too many opportunities for, um, you know, on the spot, uh, improvisation and, and stuff like that. Uh, however, you know, a big thing for me, and especially with dialogue in specific when it comes to scripts, is I'm not married to the dialogue 100% of the time. And so, a bit, you know, a thing that I feel really makes it natural, uh, and, and I've found this in, in my own stuff when I've made short films and, and what have you before this, is, hey, listen, the dialogue is really a guide. It's a guide to where I want to see the conversation go. It's a guide to the story and where the story is going to go. And it really reveals to them, the actors, as they're reading, who the character is, and that way they can really understand it more. And so for me, the most important thing is for them to understand um, who the characters are based on the script, and then kind of make it their own, and, and allow themselves to take chances and take risks, uh, knowing who the character is based off that dialogue. And so, yeah, it's definitely dialogue-heavy, and uh, and I knew that going into it, but again, for me, the the story was between David and uh, and Mary, mm-hmm. and not necessarily kind of everything that's happening around them. Uh, the stuff that was happening around them was bringing those layers out of them, not so much dictating uh, who they were as characters. Mm-hmm. Did that present a challenge for you visually to come up with, to work with Robert, come up with? some interesting visuals to accompany and to offset the dialogue without detracting from what's being said. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, and I think we succeeded um, in some parts and I think, you know, there were some parts that could have been a little bit better as far as, you know, uh, figuring that out. You know, for me, uh, the biggest thing, Robert brought a layer and, and he, he brought a kind of, uh, psychology to, you know, why these shots would be like this. And, and really for me, 
just kind of making sure I remember specifically telling him, you know, I want a lot of this to be handheld. I want it to feel uneasy. I want it to feel kind of messy. And, and, uh, you know, so even when we got to the dialogue scenes, when they're saying very straightforward things, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to kind of have that, that kind of unease between that conversation. And especially with Mary and David, there is a, a feeling that I was hoping to achieve between them that maybe there's a familiarity, maybe not, uh, between the two characters and, and kind of exploring that. So, yeah, it was definitely challenging, specifically inside such a close thing like a tent mm-hmm. um, to move around in. But, uh, but yeah, I think Robert, Robert and myself, you know, we definitely worked hard at that. Well, and that's where your handheld camera work also comes into play to help with that uh, that creation of ambiguity and the curiosity of, you know, is there a familiarity between these two people? Is there not? Um, are we just imagining it because it's it's post-apocalypse and anybody who sees another human being, it might be recognizable. Um, so that, that tentativeness, that unease, that, that unknowing, it works really well when you're when you're running with that with the handheld. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you noticing that. That means a lot. Now, because of as dialogue heavy as this is, did Tim and Lulu have the opportunity to ad lib, or was this because of the nature of the dialogue? Was it stick to the script? Stick to the script. Yeah, well, they did definitely have time to rehearse for a few months prior to we kind of walked walk through the mo- the movements and kind of what we were thinking and feeling out. That way when we show up to set, there's no, you know, like, oh, well, I was going to do this and, and you kind of want us to do this. We, we got rid of all that with rehearsals. And so um, when we came on the set, it was really like just sitting down, relaxing, really entering into who the characters were. And then really opening it up to allow improv, allow on-the-spot adjustments. And and Tim and Lulu, you know, they really did like sticking to the script, but there were even times where I was kind of encouraging them to say, hey, you know what, forget the script for a second and just kind of tell me what how you feel in this moment. And and uh, they were really receptive to that. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was definitely, I, I hope, an atmosphere for them of, you know, ambiguity and, and kind of on-the-spotness to a degree. And, of course, I have to say it, you know, I know Tim laughed when I said it to him, but there is a lot of Bruce Dern coming out of him in this performance as David. <laughs> <laughs> really yeah, is. He, he is good. He's, I mean, Tim is very good. Um yeah. You know, what was, because you'd done one other, you'd done a feature prior to this one. You have a lot of experience with doing short films. How big a difference is it for you as a director between doing shorts and doing a feature? You know, it's pretty big. Um, I think that was maybe one of the things that I learned the most on this film, which was um, just the, the, the how much it truly is i've heard the cliche uh it's a marathon it's not a sprint when you're making a feature-length film and i'm like oh well we'll see and then when i i did it i was like oh my gosh that is so true it's it's just you know the big thing is is when you you come into work if you work a normal job um and maybe you just have a bad day you're a little slow maybe you're you're kind of slacking a little bit um that's okay everybody's got a bad day when you show up to set as a director and you're in charge of an entire crew, and you're in charge of basically these things that are being filmed that will last a lifetime. Um, you know, it's you can't really have a bad day. You got to be on top of it. And so that was one of the big things that I learned. Um, not that I had any bad days, but just how uh, focused you need to be, and how you need to kind of really let go of anything you've got going on in your personal life when you come to set. And so. Um, that was the biggest thing is just realizing that, you know, it is, it is a marathon, pace yourself, be steady, don't rush. And, and really just, 
feed off the team that is around you. Don't try to be a one-man band. Um, really feed off that collaboration because it can do nothing but benefit the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was that was probably uh, the biggest thing that comes to mind is is just you know working together and making sure that you stay focused and doing whatever you can to stay focused while you're filming. And where can everybody see the tent right now? Uh, so the tent is available on Amazon. So you can rent or you can buy the Blu-ray. Uh, you can also rent it on iTunes. You can rent it on Google Play Movies. You can uh, buy it online at Walmart or online at Target. Um, and there's a few other VOD plot platforms. Uh, it's available in the Microsoft Store. Uh, you can buy it online at Barnes & Noble. So pretty much if you go online and you just type in the tent movie and purchase you'll be able to find it. You're going to find it, you know. So for everybody out there who is still lamenting, and I, and even some colleagues of mine, there are no movies. There are no movies. There are movies. This is one of them. There is more than yeah. Netflix out there, people. Um, I love Netflix. Don't get me wrong. But, yeah, there oh, yeah. there are some great movies, and The Tent is is one of them. And, um, yeah, yeah, I'm actually going to make sure I buy it for my aunt so that she has it because I know this is, I know this is a film that she will definitely want to see. Um, thank you. We also have, uh, on our, we have a website, www.survivethetent.com. And that has all that bonus feature stuff Mm -hmm. that a DVD would have on it normally. So check that out. And it also has all the locations and places you can buy and rent it to. Oh, Kyle, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. This has been, again, a delight talking to you. Um, And for you, for you, just like Ryan, for, you know, both of you to jump up at the 11th hour and say, (laughs) we'll come on, we'll come on. Um, I'm very, yeah. tu- I'm very touched and I can't thank you enough for that. Um, I really, well, it's a pleasure I, to talk to you, Debbie. Oh, uh, and get, are you working on another film for me? I am. I am. Uh, right now I am in the process of writing it. It's a little bit more grounded than the tent, okay. but it's definitely, uh, no less psychologically, uh, driven. So, oh, I can't wait, Kyle. Thank you. And you have to come back on the show again. Oh, of course. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kyle. And I will talk to you soon, I hope. All right. Yeah, I hope the same. Oh, okay. Have a great week, Kyle. Thank you, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Kyle Couch talking about the tent. All right, Pam, should, should we hold? Should we, should we run Alex? We should? Okay, Pam has made the executive decision. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had a chance to speak with Alex Winter, Bill S. Preston, um, about his new documentary, Showbiz Kids, which is out right now. It is superb. I can't recommend it highly enough. But, of course, I had to ask about Bill and Ted Face the Music. And since the trailer just dropped and we have a release date of September 1, Thought I'd let you take a listen to a little snippet of our conversation about Bill and Ted Face the Music. One last question before I let you go, Alex, and I would be rem- I would be remiss not to ask it. What is the one thing you can tell me about Bill and Ted 3? Well, it's on its way, I can tell you, with complete confidence and not much more specificity, unfortunately. Um, it is it is on its way. We are, are very, very happy with the film. We worked very hard on it. It was not easy at any part of the process. It's all been a challenge from one end to the other, but every Bill and Ted movie is, so it's really just fits squarely into the franchise. Um <laughs> But we are we're very, very happy with it and really eager to get it out into the public and, and to let them have it. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to to that film being released soon, which it will be. And was we it, will have more news on that um, as we have it, but we will have more news uh, soon. Was it fun to revisit Bill S. Preston? 
Oh yeah, it, it was it was just. I mean, there there are few things that I find more joyful than performing with Keanu, and we you know we are very close friends and have been all these years. Uh, but there's something different about actually being on set and in front of a camera together and in that playground playing those characters. And I think we both looked at each other after the end of week one and we're just like, almost didn't need to even say anything. It was just like, ah, it's good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it is for all of us too. mark your calendars for September 1. Bill and Ted face the music. That is all the time we have today again. Ryan Brookhart, Kyle Couch, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Always a joy to talk to you. Clint Morris, you are a god. Um, Next week, we have a full show next week. I think Sam Friedlander is back with us. Sam was here last year when his film had its festival premiere. It now has distribution and is coming out. So Sam hopefully will be joining us next week along with another writer-director. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.